Well, we're talking about unity again. You know, one of, the, one of the difficulties of returning to the same topic over and over again is to try to think of some creative way to introduce it each week. You know, you sort of run out of, of uh, good tantalizing introduction. So I was thinking about this week, as we return to this whole topic of Christian unity, an elusive jewel, and I thought about the analogy of music. A lot about the analogy of music. Music is an interesting thing. It can be very, very simple, sort of like a folk song kind of thing, or it can be very, very complex with a symphony orchestra. And the thing about a symphony orchestra that I think is such a good analogy with regard to the unity of the church is that in a symphony orchestra, you have all of these various musicians, all of these players. And they're not all playing the exact same note. And in fact, they're not all playing at the exact same time. It kind of moves in and out and different sections, woodwinds or the string section or whatever might carry the melody. And and there's the rhythm section and there's the percussion and the brass and and so forth. So you've got all of this and and sometimes they, they... they sort of, uh, the, the melody will flutter and float back and forth. And so it's just a complex thing that's going on. And if one particular musician or a group of musicians decides that they want to be front and center, and so they sort of elevate the volume or something beyond that which the composer and the director intends, then it doesn't enhance anything. In fact, it detracts. And so if you just, in your mind, think about a symphony and all of the intricacies and complexities and and the fact that everybody's involved, every single instrument's important, even if it's it's only five notes at a key place, everyone's important, everyone is needed to make the symphony come off. And that is a good analogy, I think, to the unity of God's church. Unity does not mean uniformity, it means harmony. It means harmony. Open your Bibles back up to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is the fifth message of the series on Christian unity. Paul's instructions here to walk worthily of the God who has redeemed us and placed his calling upon our lives. Let me read the text for you as we begin. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one God and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are organizing our study of unity here in this section of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in a question and answer kind of format. And the reason we're doing that is because the the discussion and topic of unity is so big, so broad, and there are so many things that I think are appropriate and need to be addressed in this matter that, that it's difficult to do it in a traditional sort of expositional way. And so we've been doing it in the question and answer format, and we're going to do that through verse 16 when we finally finish this section. And so what we have here is for us another question this morning. Last week, we asked and answered the question, what role does baptism play in church unity? There in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This week, we want to explore the role of spiritual gifts in the building of unity. The role of the spiritual gifts in the building of the unity. Now, before we take up the topic here of spiritual gifts, it's probably a good idea to review the section that we've just read, because I don't want to become so disconnected from Ephesians that we forget why we're here and how this all began. So if you'll permit me, we'll just go through the topic of unity in verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians. Now, the kind of a big picture of Ephesians and how it addresses unity, and Paul moves his argument forward before we back up to verses 7 through 10 and deal with the question of spiritual gifts. Okay, so a little bit of an overview. Verses 1 to 3, 1 to 3 here in this section, focuses on the character qualities that preserve unity. Paul begins with that. He talks about humility, he talks about patience, he talks about tolerance. He moves then in verses 4 through 6 to talk here about the theological basis of our unity, and in particular, the work of the triune Godhead. You see it there, verse 4, one spirit, verse 5, one Lord, that would be the Son, and verse 6, one God and Father. So the theological basis of our unity in the work of the triune God. He moves then for what we're going to look at this morning in verses 7 through 10, and he contrasts here now, and there's, a, there's a, a contrast. You notice it in verse 7. He begins with the, the conjunction but. And so there's a contrast here of the oneness with the distinctions that exist within the body with regard to the spiritual gifting. So it's still about unity, but now it's about diversity or distinctions that are there within the unity, hence my introduction about a symphony orchestra and so forth. Verses 11 through 16, actually one long sentence, by the way, verses 11 through 16 introduce the topic of the specific gifted men whose ministry provides the spiritual nutrition that enables the body to grow and mature. So that's still all part of the discussion of unity, each and every part critical to advance what it means to have unity in a local church. So we're going to roll it all up. I'm going to summarize Paul's teaching here. What's verses 1 through 16 about? Here it is. This is a sermon in a sentence. Are you ready? And not a Pauline sentence, by the way. Okay? This is a, this is a more traditional English kind of sentence. Here it is. Sermon in a sentence. It's this. Local church unity is rooted in the work of the Trinity, manifested through widespread ministry involvement, nourished by strong Bible teaching, and lived out in an atmosphere of patience and humility. Okay, so that puts it all together. I'll just give it to you again. Church unity is rooted in the work of the Trinity, manifested through widespread ministry involvement, 
nourished by strong Bible teaching and lived out in an atmosphere of humility and patience. Okay, verses 7 and following, and the question, how do spiritual gifts build unity? How do spiritual gifts build unity? Paul says that to each one of us, excuse me, yes, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The thrust here in these verses, by the way, and then I won't reread again to you, uh, 8, 9, and 10, but the thrust of these verses is really quite simple. The message here is is really quite simple. It is that, that Christ has given to his children certain gifts, and he has earned the right to do so by virtue of his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And from that position of sovereign glory, he dispenses gifts to his church. That's what verses 7 through 10 are about. But the devil is in the details, as they say. In order to account for um, all the pieces that Paul has, we're thrust into what is acknowledged by most as one of the more difficult sections, certainly of this epistle, and maybe even of the the entire New Testament. And, And it's the use of the Old Testament in the New. In other words, exactly what is Paul doing? We understand the the thrust of it all. That's simple enough. He has given gifts to his church for the purpose of promoting unity, and he has the right and authority to do it because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Got it. But, But what is this whole thing about when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men? We read Psalm 68, and that's not what it says. So exactly how does Paul make his point? How is he using the Old Testament to support his point? There are all kinds of problems in this text, and there is no way that we are going to solve them all this morning to everyone's satisfaction. So we do a Q&A after service. Uh, when I finish, come on down, ask your questions. I'll do the best I can, but let me tell you, the problems are big. And I don't know that I have all the solutions, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go through all the possibilities with you. We'd be here forever. I'm just going to tell you what I've concluded at this point. Reserving the right, <laughs> as I grow older and wiser, to change my mind. Okay? To change my mind. I think the, the basis of what it says, there's no discrepancy there. It's just how all the pieces fit together. Okay? So, I'm going to take you through it. I'm going to show you a, a one way to put the pieces together. If you don't like it, it's okay. We're still Christians. Still love you in the Lord. Right? You can apologize to me later when we get the glory. <laughs> or are you. Or are you. All right. So, here we go. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each of us, grace was given. We we looked at and spent some time developing, um, when we were back in chapter 3, Paul's use of the word grace or or charis in the the Greek, um, Back in chapter 3, where Paul uses it here in verse 2 of chapter 3, for if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, and and then down in verse 7 of chapter 3, where he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, grace is is easy enough to understand, at least academically, right? It's the unmerited and undeserved favor of God. That undeserved and unmerited favor of God is certainly in the realm of salvation. Chapter 2, right, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We sort of understand that, and usually when the term grace is used, that's kind of what it's referring to, and and we, we get all of that. But it also means the same thing, the unmerited and undeserved favor of God in the realm of service. And that's how Paul used it over in chapter 3, verses 2 and 7. We developed it when we were there. Okay, That's what he's talking about here in verse 7 of chapter 4. He is referring to grace in that context, that realm. 
It is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God in the realm of service. In the realm of service. Used that way, grace refers um, not only to the specific assignment that has been given to each individual. In Paul's case, right, it's to be a church planter among the Gentiles. That was the gift of grace in his life. But it, it also refers not just to the assignment, but it's a kind of an inclusive, a package term. It refers to the power and the capabilities that are given by God to accomplish the assignment that he has given to each and every one of us. So here in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says to each of us grace was given, he is talking about the work of God to give to me and to you, if you're a child of God this morning, is unmerited, undeserved favor, which is an assignment and the power and capacity to fulfill the assignment. In other words, if God has called you to something, he enables you to accomplish that which he has called you to do. Now, this word, grace here, charis, is very closely associated with another Greek word, uh, charisma, which refers to grace gift. It's translated, in the, at least in the New American Standard, as gift. And it's used in parallel with the gift passages of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or of Romans chapter 12. And in fact, let me do this. Let me turn you to Romans uh, chapter 12. I want to show you this, the use of the words in close proximity to one another because it's important for us. Okay, Romans chapter 12, verse 6, we find the word charis or grace and charisma, grace gift, used in the same context side by side. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Since we have gifts, charisma, that differ according to the grace, charis, given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he teaches in his teaching, and so forth. Okay? So you see it there. We have charisma, we have gifts, and they are given according to charis, the grace. Okay? The assignment and the capacity to do all of these things. What this means is, when we're back here in Ephesians chapter 4, the things we're going to talk about here, in the background, running parallel along this, are Paul's instructions to, to the other churches in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, primarily having to do with the spiritual gifts. Now, it's probably a good idea at the moment to, to pause here and to define spiritual gifts. Right? We're using the word, probably a good idea to define it. So let's go ahead and do that for us. Here they are. Here it is. Spiritual gifts are divine enablements given by God to individual believers in order to enable them to perform their particular works of service within the church. Read it again. Spiritual gifts are divine enablements given by God to individual believers in order to enable them to perform their particular works of service within the church. In other words, to fulfill God's calling upon their lives. Now, we receive the spiritual gifts at the moment of our redemption and inclusion into the body of Christ. What Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized, right, by or in a, one spirit into the body of Christ. It is at that point and moment in time that we are gifted by God for the works of service that he is calling us to do. This gift or gifts, if you want to look at it that way, I, I prefer to see it as a gift that has a lot of components. Kind of like at Christmas time, you open the box, you get a shirt, you get a pair of socks, you get a scarf. You know, is it one gift or is it multiple? You decide. Okay? So I think basically there are different capacities and, and strengths and so forth that are pulled together by God to each and every one of us, and they're individually assorted or, or assigned, as we'll see. And that means that none of us are alike. None of us are alike. And these gifts or gift can often, and I would say frequently does, lie dormant and undiscovered in people until it is brought out and developed by them using, uh, beginning to serve other people. And then the gifts become more 
a parent. So if you're sitting here this morning and you say, boy, I don't know, am I gifted or not? And I would suggest to you that if you're not sure, there are ways to go about trying to discern some of that. But the best and easiest is just get involved. Get involved and start serving, and it will become apparent how God has made you and called you. So, back to Ephesians 4, verse 7. And let us look here at this verse a little bit closely and sort of draw out some of the implications of it all. Notice Paul says, to each of us. You see that? To each of us. In contrast here to the one faith of verse 5, right? The idea of all this unity. There is now this idea of diversity or distinction. And what he says is, to each of us, something has been given. And what that means is that, that each of us individually have received something. So we can, we can deduce from this that the spiritual gifts are universally given among the believers, right? To each of, and then notice Paul says us, so he wraps himself in with this, okay? So they are universally given among the believers. In other words, that uh, if, even if you know your gift or don't know your gift this morning, it doesn't matter if you're a child of God, you have been given a gift to each of us, all right? And that gift is both an assignment and the power and capacity to accomplish the assignment to each of us. To each of us, Paul says, grace was given, and then notice the next expression, according to the measure of Christ's gift. According to the measure of Christ's gift. A couple of things here to draw out of that is, is first, um, there is the sovereignty of Christ here. Right? It's according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, he is the one who dispenses the gifts. He's the one who dispenses them, and he does it, as it says here, according to the measure or the proportion of his own choosing. Of his own choosing. In fact, the, uh, the old NIV, the 1978 translation of the NIV, translated as, as Christ appointed it. I kind of like that, actually. To each of us, grace was given... As Christ apportioned it. That's a good way to look at it. As Christ, the sovereign one, apportioned it. What does it mean? That means that people have different gifts. They have different gifts and different capacities even to utilize the gifts that they have. And it's all a result of, of Christ's sovereign distribution. I mean, look down. Let your eyes drop down to verse 11 in the same the same chapter here, chapter 4, and he gave some as apostles. This is an illustration of the statement that he's making here up in verse 7. As Christ apportioned it, as Christ handed them out, and he handed out to some that they would be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Okay, Not everybody is an apostle, prophet, evangelist, or pastor, teacher. Okay, So there is a, there is a sovereign apportionment to all of this. What does that mean? Well, it means this, if nothing more. It means that the spiritual gifts cannot be chosen. And they are not self-determined. So you can't say, you know what, I think what I'd like to be is, and then just, you know, rattle it off. You don't get to choose. You didn't choose what family you were born into. You don't get to choose what your spiritual gift and capacity is. Okay? God chooses it for you. Beyond that... Because that's true, there's no place for jealousy in what another person has, right? If you don't get to determine it, you don't get to choose it, Christ chooses it, Christ apportions it, you have no basis to be jealous of other people's giftedness, okay? Nor should you measure yourself against other people's giftedness, but it happens all the time, all the time. We look around, and in fact, you know who are the most susceptible individuals in the church to measure themselves against others' giftedness? Pastors. Pastors. You go to a pastor's conference. You don't have to be there very long before someone will ask you a question. And the question they will ask you is, how big is your church? Okay? How big is your church? And I used to struggle with that question a lot. And my answer now is, is as big as God wants it to be. 
right? Because it's his church, not mine. And my giftedness is not the same as the giftedness of the other individuals there, right? So there's no point in me losing any sleep over the fact that I'm not as gifted as, and you name your favorite radio preacher, okay, or internet preacher. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And I'm okay with that. Because I have what I have as God has given it to me. That's true of me. That's true of you. Okay, so don't look around in the congregation here and say, oh, I wish I was like so-and-so, or I, I could do this, and oh, they can do that, and I can't do anything. No, stop. Okay, stop. You have what you have, because it's been apportioned to you by Christ. Now, you may not have fully developed what you have yet. That's a separate conversation. Okay? You may have a lot more than you think you have. But what you have, you have by the sovereign hand of Christ. Okay. Just in the whole context here, maybe one other thing I want to just point out to you is down in verse 16, where he says it, it causes the growth of the body. You see it down there? Proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body. The reason Christ gives the spiritual gifts individually as he apportions, is for the purpose of building up the local church. That's their purpose. In fact, he says that in chapter 12, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians, where he says, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. What this means is that the exercise of our giftedness is never primarily for our own benefit. It is for the benefit of the local body, for the benefit of others, for the benefit of others. By the way, that, I think, is a, is a reason, one of many reasons, but a reason why the whole idea of, of speaking in tongues as a private prayer language doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, I don't go in the closet and preach to myself, okay, because my gift is to the edification of the body, the idea of private tongue-speaking just doesn't comport with Paul's statements about the purpose of giftedness, which is the unity and edification of a local church. Okay, you can just file that away. Now, Paul has declared here, verse 7, the reality of Christ's gifts to the church. Now he's going to take up an explanation, right? You see, verse 8, therefore, that indicates there's going to be an explanation here. You're going to take up an explanation as to how Christ obtained the right to do this. He was given gifts sovereignly, but who gave him the right? Where does Jesus get the authority to do what he has done? And so Paul is going to, is going to provide the reasons here, and he's going to do it through a citation from Psalm 68 and verse 18. And he's going to give us that in verse 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, he's going to provide his exegesis of the verse. Okay, so we're going to get a, we're going to get a bird's eye view into Paul's use of the Old Testament. So here you go. It begins with a problem. And the problem is the citation from Psalm 68. And there are actually multiple problems involved in this, but the, I'm not going to give them all to you, but the most vexing problem of all is that Paul changes the verb. And he changes it, and uh, maybe it's a good idea here. Keep your, your thumb in Ephesians and uh, flip it back open to Psalm 68. I just want to show you a couple things. Okay, so it would be helpful if you were to look at Psalm 68. Notice Psalm 68 and verse 18. Psalm 68, 18, Paul, or excuse me, David says, verse 18, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men. You have received gifts among men. Flip back now to Ephesians and notice what it says here. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. One in the, in the original in the psalm, it says, he receives gifts from men. Here it says he, Christ, gave gifts to men. Both the, the Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the Septuagint both uh, present verse 18 
essentially the way your English Bible has it in Psalm 68, okay? And in fact, there's no manuscript we can find that says it the way Paul says it. So what in the world's going on? What's going on? What's she doing here? How's he using the Old Testament? As I said, a lot of proposals put forward. Let me just kind of, for the sake of time, just show you what I think he's doing. Okay? So, a couple of things. Overarching for Psalm 68. One writer wrote it this way. I think he's got it right. He says this. Psalm 68 is a prayer. Psalm 68 is a prayer that the divine warrior will manifest his power, strengthen his people, and defeat the enemies of Israel. That's the basic overarching statement of what Psalm 68 is all about, right? The divine warrior will manifest his power, strengthen his people, and defeat his enemies. And here in Psalm 68, David recounts how God has repeatedly provided for the needs of his people. Let me show you that. Verses 5 and 6, Psalm 68, where David says, He's the father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. He is the divine warrior here. God makes a, a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Okay, so he is, he is providing for his people. Beyond that, look at verses 9 and 10, where David says, You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. So, Repeatedly through this psalm is a recognition that God, the divine warrior, is providing for the needs of his people. In verse 18, the divine warrior here receives tribute from his vanquished enemies, right? You have received gifts among men. You have taken your captives, and they have paid tribute to you, basically is the idea. All right? And so you've received gifts from your men, or from the captives here. And I, and I think... What's implicit in all of this is he doesn't get them and hang on to them. He gets them and turns them back to give to his people. In fact, the psalm ends in verse 35 where he says, O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. So God, the divine warrior king, provides for the nation, vanquishes their enemies, and gives them what they need. That's the, that's the basic message of that psalm. So Paul, very familiar with his Old Testament, now reaches back to that psalm and he, and he interprets it Christologically. He interprets it Christologically. In other words, he sees in the psalm Christ's power to save his people from their ultimate and, and true enemies, which is sin, death, and Satan. And so Paul conflates, okay, he, he squeezes together. And, and this is, by the way, something that's important to remember. In the New Testament use of the Old Testament, often um, the verse that is cited is not the only thing that the author is, is referring to. They're often dragging forward the whole context of the psalm and summarizing it in a verse. Okay, just, just put it this way. Uh, the rules of, of uh, citation that you and I live by, footnotes, documented, word for word, all that sort of stuff, that's a modern convention. Okay, that's just something that our educational system thinks is super important. Okay? It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And in the, Old Test in the New Testament use of the Old, it's often not that way. And so what Paul is doing here in verse 18 is he is sweeping up the entire message of Psalm 68 and he is dragging it forward through verse 18, and in the process of doing that, he feels the freedom to change the verb tense by seeing in Christ the fulfillment of the divine warrior that is spoken of in the psalm. Okay? So what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that when Christ ascended to glory... And it's kind of the idea there where it talks about the warrior king ascends to Zion. Christ ascended to glory. He took captive a host of captives, it says, and he distributed to his people their needs. That's the message of Psalm 68 as well. And so if that's true, if that's the right understanding of this, okay, and I'll give you the if, 
If that's the right understanding of what Paul's doing here, then I would understand in verse 8, where it says he ascended on high, it's speaking about Christ, he led captive a host of captives. I would understand the captives to be a reference here to the principalities and powers of the spirit realm whom Christ has been made Lord over. He has taken them captive. That's a message that has been first introduced to us in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Right? So if you go back there to chapter 1, you understand that this is very much in Paul's mind. Where he says, verse 20, when he the Father brought, which the, he the Father brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The authorities, the powers, and the dominions. And in fact, if you go over to chapter 6 of the same letter here, Ephesians, right? We are told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers, the powers, and the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, your biggest enemy in life is not your boss or your neighbor or the random stranger you meet somewhere. Your biggest problem and enemy in life is the spiritual realm of the demonic that is arrayed against you and would seek your overthrow. But Christ has conquered them. He has taken them captive. And because he has taken them captive, and, it, and he now is in this position of sovereign authority to dispense his gifts to his good people. Colossians, turn over to Colossians chapter 2 which says essentially everything I've just said in one verse. Verse 15, Colossians 2.15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He's made a display of the authorities that he has triumphed over. In context here, it's still talking about the spirit realm. The spirit realm. Okay? So what Paul's doing here is he is asserting that the fulfillment of the message of Psalm 68 is ultimately found in Christ. He is your divine warrior king. He is the one who has defeated all your enemies. He is the one who provides for all your needs. He is the one who has taken captive all those who are arrayed against you. Okay? That's what Paul is doing here. Verse 9. We have a little parenthetical insert. Now this expression, he ascended. We're now getting into Paul's exegesis of his Psalm 68, 18 quote, okay? To kind of support all of this. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Paul is not asking, what does the word ascended mean? Okay? This is a rhetorical question. This is a rhetorical question. What he, what he is saying here, what, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? What he is asking is, what does this citation from Psalm 68.18 mean that I have just given you? And what he wants to, to, for you to, to have your eyes um, go to, as it were, is that the, the fact that he has ascended means he descended. And that's what he says. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? So Paul wants to get at the idea from the ascension to Christ's descending. Followed, verse 10, by him Ascending. You get it? You see it? Verse 10, right? He who descended is himself also he who ascended. So he's working his way to something. Working his way towards something. And what he is working his way towards is the, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And what he basically is saying here is that our divine warrior king descended 
Verse 9, what does it mean except he also descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is himself also he who ascended. I think what he's talking about here is the incarnation, and with it comes the death and burial, and then resurrection followed by the ascension to glory. He is talking about Christ's salvific mission. That's what he's really talking about here. Now, a lot of people get wound up on this. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. They combine it with 1 Peter 3.19. No, Jesus, when he died, he went down to Hades or he went down to hell and he preached to the demons there and, and so forth. And if you want to believe that, that's okay. And that's an old interpretation, by the way. I just don't think it's right, but I could be wrong. Okay, I, But I don't think that's the message here. I think the message is a bigger one than that. And the message that he's given here, and I just have to say it over and over to you again, is that he who descended came to the earth is the one who ascended, right? And look at it, verse 10, far above the heavens. That's what I think the lower part of the earth is talking about. It's not talking spatially. It's not saying, hey, you know, there's the surface of the earth and then there's under the earth. And so Jesus, he came to the earth and then he went under the earth. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, he from glory came to earth and returned to glory again. And when he did it, he took captive all of the enemies of his people. And he provided with his pe- for his people everything that they could need to accomplish his purposes through them. Philippians chapter 2, I think there it is, the same basic concept. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 8, found an appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the big idea. That's the big idea. And from this position of ascension far above the heavens, in other words, to the highest heavens, Christ sovereignly dispenses gifts to his church and rules over all. And I think that's exactly what it means here when it says, so that he might fill, verse 10, all things. That's a statement about sovereignty. It's a statement about sovereignty. So let me say it one more time. Paul finds in Psalm 68, Christologically interpreted, a picture of Christ's great work. In Psalm 68, the divine warrior God came and delivered his people provided them everything they needed, took captive all their their enemies, and and ascended himself to Mount Zion there in the Solomonic Temple. Paul sees that as a picture of what Jesus has done for you and I. Jesus has come. He has descended to the earth. There on the earth he lived and he died. My death, your death. The grave couldn't hold him. He ascended to the right hand of the Father from the position of authority at the right hand of the Father. He has taken captive all your enemies. He has removed the sting of death, which is sin. He has delivered you from the power and stranglehold of of Satan himself, according to chapter 2. And he dispenses to each of us the gifts we need to fulfill his calling on our lives. In other words, the barrier to your service, kind of bring it full circle, has been removed. It has been removed. What are the implications of all of that? We need to serve. It's as simple as that. We need to serve. Let me give you some some specifics. Okay? Just kind of go home and think on these thoughts. We all have a place to serve here at Foothill. All right? To each of us, verse 7. There's a place of service for everybody. If you're part of Foothill this morning, there's a place for you. And if you're not presently in that place, 
then you are not fulfilling the divine calling on your life. Beyond that, when you withhold yourself from serving here in the body, the body suffers for it. The body suffers for it. Paul says that as, as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 and 22, where he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now, in the context there, he's talking about people who arrogantly say, Hey, you know what? I got all the gifts I need. We don't need you. But we can flip that around. Okay? You're necessary. You are necessary to this church. If you were part of Foothill Bible Church this morning, this is your regular church. This is where you have placed your membership and your involvement. You are necessary. Beyond that, serving others takes our eyes off of ourselves. And it's the quickest and easiest way, I think, to fulfill what Paul says over here in verses 2 and 3 about being diligent to preserve the unity. When we're serving, we're not being served. That makes humility and patience and tolerance a whole lot easier. When we are seeking to be served, we get to be kind of picky about how we're served, right? Kind of a restaurant analogy. You know, you go into the restaurant, if you're there and you're paying, you expect the waitress or the waiter to take care of your every need, right? And if you don't, you don't give them a tip. Well, if you're not involved here at Foothill, and you're here week after week without being involved, you are treating this local church much like a local diner. And if we put on a good show, you'll leave us a tip. Okay? Ask the Spirit if that's not true. So it's your involvement that transforms your attitude. Transforms your attitude. Takes our eyes off of ourselves. Beyond that, and frequently through the years I've heard this, I'm not gifted. Can you help out in such and such? I'm not gifted that way. Okay. Maybe so. But how do you know where you're gifted if you don't try? You're not sure where you're gifted and called? Start getting involved. It will become obvious. I'll tell you, there was many, 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 many years ago in a land far, far away, like the other side of America, that... uh, I was involved in an adult Sunday school class, and a guy asked me, will you help me teach the class? And, and my first thoughts were, are you kidding me? There is no way I'm going to stand up in front of people and try to talk, especially to talk from the Bible. I'm not gifted that way. Now, I didn't say all that, because I wasn't very bold. <laughs> and I said, you Really? And he said, yes, I want your help. I want you to help me to teach the book of Ephesians. How's that? Isn't that interesting? And so I said, well, what does that mean? What do you want from me? And he said, I want you to speak for 10 minutes on the historical introduction to the book of Ephesians. I want you to, I want you to tell the class what you've learned about the city of Ephesus and the temple of Diana. And, I'm, and I will meet with you, and I, will, and I will show you the resources that you need to look into so you can get the answer. And so I said, okay, I'll try it. So I spent 20 hours <laughs> reading so I could speak for 10 minutes. And I got up, and I, you know, typical head down, read it all out, and, and I sat down, and I thought, man, I survived. But people came up to me and they said, that was, that was really helpful. I said, it was? <laughs> they said, yeah, we think you should, we should do more of this. And so over the years, people said, you know what? I think you have a gift of teaching. You should teach. 
You want to know if you have the gift of teaching, by the way? You start out in the kindergarten. <laughs> start with the kindergartners. If you can hold their attention, you can hold anybody's attention. <laughs> right? I remember Carol and I working in the kindergarten, right? And so uh, the, my biggest role was to keep the kids from eating the red crayons. <laughs> and every week there was an elder's kid who always ate the red crayon. It's always the elder's kids. Turn my back, that little rascal, she'd eat that crayon so fast. <laughs> Parents would come to get her. She'd smile and it'd be red in her teeth. And I said, I watched her, honest, I did. You got to start. If you don't know where you are, if you don't know how God's gifted you, you don't have a place to service here, find a place to start. Maybe one more and we'll close it up. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is valuable. But no one is irreplaceable. Everyone is valuable. No one is irreplaceable. If we think we are irreplaceable, then we have forgotten whose church it really is. Right? Jesus said, I will build my church. So he uses you and I to do that. Okay? But we are not irreplaceable. And that's some of the divine mystery in all of this. You are necessary, but you are not irreplaceable. May God's spirit apply his word where it's helpful in each and every one of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the exhortation of it. For the reminder that Jesus is building his church and he has chosen to build it through us as he sovereignly gifts each and every one of us and assigns to us a role to play a task. Our Father, may you help us to understand how we fit into all of that, not to see ourselves more highly than we ought to, but conversely, not to assume that we have no value, no role to play. Please deliver us from a spectator's mindset. Help us to humble our heart, O oh Lord, and seek to serve and not to be served. That Jesus would gain all the glory that he is rightfully due. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.